0: During the 17th and 18th centuries, the Jacobite movement made several attempts to restore the Stuart dynasty to the British throne. And on today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're speaking to Murray Pittock, who's answering your questions on who the Jacobites were and what they wanted. Putting your questions to Murray was BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slattery-Williams. We've had a lot of questions in um, about the Jacobites from our
2: readers on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and also some of the biggest Google searches. So I think the first question should be, who were the Jacobites and what does the name Jacobite mean?
4: So the name Jacobite simply means uh, a follower or supporter of James because it was James II of England and Ireland and Seventh of Scotland who was the last monarch in the direct Stuart line and was exiled in 1688 and uh, his supporters became known as jacobites what did they want uh, who were they they were they were the supporters of james initially but the reason the jacobites are still popular and important today is because they represent a different version of the way in which uh, great britain and ireland could have developed so whereas english jacobites tended to want they wanted the stuart's back uh, they distrusted the city of London. Uh, they distrusted the new financial, the new financial markets that came in in the sixteen nineties. They didn't much like foreigners being ruled by Dutch and Germans and so on. And they tended also to be partisans of a Church of England, uh, which the the king, as a, a High Anglican or indeed even a Catholic, uh, since they were supporting the Stuarts in exile, uh, was a legitimate ruler. Uh, uh, But the Scots and Irish tended to want the Stuarts back for different reasons. They wanted them uh, back because they wanted a multi-kingdom monarchy, such as it obtained in uh, the British Isles before 1689, and particularly before 1707, which is the union between England and Scotland. So uh, they wanted a different constitutional settlement and a different religious settlement, Catholicism back in Ireland, Episcopalianism back in Scotland. And uh, English Jacobinism tended to be much more a series of kind of resentments, resentments about foreigners, resentments about uh, about London, uh, resentments uh, resentments about traditional ways of life being under attack. So that's really the very, those are really very diverse things that Jacobinism represented to different people.
2: Could you br- briefly explain why James II had been removed from the throne in 1688 and why this group wanted him reinstated?
4: Well, James James was removed because, first of all, he was a Catholic. He was a Catholic king. He was the first Catholic king, not the first Catholic ruler, in uh, England since the Reformation. And uh, whereas it was widely expected that he would die without any legitimate children, legitimate sons, I should say, his daughters were both Protestants, so that was all right. So the birth of his son James on the in the tenth of June. 1688, uh, led a number of leading figures uh, in the House of Lords and Commons in Westminster to ask James's son-in-law and nephew, William of Orange, uh, the ruler of the Netherlands, to invade uh, in order to secure a Protestant succession, uh, or at least, this was very ambivalent, uh, at least to confine the king's king's rights so that he couldn't uh, run roughshod over uh, parliamentary sovereignty. And the definition of parliamentary sovereignty, as we now understand it, was a really important part of the way the 1688-89 Parliament defined the conflict between themselves and the King.
2: Katie Pinner has asked on Twitter, how did the Jacobite movement start?
4: The uh, The Jacobite movement really started by the process of the King's exclusion. So when James II and VII was excluded, first of all, by the English Parliament, in uh, the end of 1688, and then by the Scottish Parliament in April 1689, in the first case leading to the Bill of Rights, and the second to the Claim of Right, there, then the Jacobites who opposed this resisted. In the case, uh, in the military case, they resisted in Scotland under Viscount Dundee, who was James' Supreme Commander of uh, the Scottish Armed Forces and remained loyal to the King uh, in exile. And although Dundee won an initial victory, he was killed in the moment of victory. Uh, In England, there were widespread uh, but rather um, limited uh, complaints and protests rather than actually a a military movement. England was a very demilitarized society. And uh, in Ireland, where the Jacobites remained in control of the Irish Parliament till the end of 1691, uh, there was full-scale war involving tens of thousands of troops and James's uh, Irish uh, viceroy, the Duke of Turconnell, raised 30,000 men and required a, a large scale Anglo Dutch force and two years' war to finally defeat him and the Irish forces. And the Ireland we have today, the division between uh, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic, the, uh, the whole ethos of Ulster Unionism descends ultimately from the conflict of 1689. Ninety-one, which defeated the Jacobites in Ireland. So it's a complicated picture. It's different in each of the three kingdoms, and the politics uh, of Jacob uh, of Jacobitism differed in England, Scotland, and Ireland. That's one of the most important points about it. For those who who primarily saw James as legi- uh, wanted James back because he was a legitimate king. One of the important things for, for listeners to know is that James is that the House of Stuart was the senior heir. It was the heir to the throne. Um, Okay, but it was also the senior heir of the House of Tudor through the marriage of Henry the Seventh to Margaret, uh, sorry, James the Fourth of Scotland to Margaret Tudor. It was also the senior heir of the House of Plantagenet through multiple marriages of the Scottish kings to the daughters of English ones. It was also the senior heir, the senior heir of the House of Wessex, the Anglo-Saxon house, through the marriage of uh, Margaret of Scotland, the niece of Edward the Confessor, to Malcolm the Third of Scotland. So fundamentally the, the stuarts were the only legitimate heirs they were overwhelmingly legitimate and that led to people really feeling that the the, the overthrowing them was too great a uh, disjunction too great a usurpation too great a change and there were all sorts of contemporary anxieties as well like if you way, overthrow the Stuarts, how can people be, how can sons, as it was then, be secure in, in inheriting their father's estates? Because we've, we've done away with the right of primogeniture, and we've not just done away with it slightly, we've done away with it enormously. Uh, because when George I came to the throne in 1714, there were 57 people with a better claim than he had. All of them, however, were Catholics.
2: I think that leads quite nicely onto the next question of who actually was involved in the movement. I think we we have an assumption that they were all Scottish, but I think you're saying that that wasn't necessarily the case. So who was actually involved? Was it ordinary people? Was it nobility?
4: There are are many uh, nobles who support the Jacobites. They do so for reasons varying from uh, patriotism and nationalism to personal friendship and connection with the royal family, and sometimes of course they're the illegitimate children or related or married to the illegitimate children of members of the royal family so there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons there but there is a lot of popular jacobite support and jacobite medals uh jacobite images were used as propaganda for example one kentish fishing boat was apprehended in 1698 with 7000 medals uh which showed the, the the pictures of James the a portrait of James the so there was a, there was widespread popular Jacobitism, and that was true in England and in Scotland, and uh, particularly in Ireland, and also, and again, particularly from Scotland and Ireland, a large number of soldiers, m- men volunteered to serve abroad in the service of France and Spain, and also to some extent of Russia and Austria, rather than serving the British Army.
2: How how big was the was the movement? How many people are we talking?
4: The estimates estimates vary but if you were, if we were to to say roughly speaking that at 1714 the point when George I comes to the throne a quarter of a century after James has been exiled we we would be talking about 75% of the population of Ireland supporting the Jacobites um and that is a uh, about one to one and a half million people. So the population of Ireland is very much closer to half, to a third to a half Englands. So very different from what the situation is now. And in England, very difficult to tell. Some probably about, uh, this would be just a guess, 10 to 20% of the population supported the Jacobites, uh, more in certain areas. And in Scotland, uh, a clear majority supported the Jacobites. So uh, we're talking there. Uh, over the terms of the population, probably around 600,000 people.
2: How many Jacobite risings were there? Could you briefly outline what these were?
4: So the first Jacobite, uh, the first Jacobite rising or, or war occurred in Scotland in 1689 to, ni- to, to 91. And in a sense, the massacre of Glencoe came at the end of that. And there was also war in Ireland at the same time, which ran all the way through. There was then um, an assassination plot in England in 1696, A rising uh, or planned rising in Scotland, which petered out in 1708. A rising in Scotland in 1715, which was massive. A rising in Scotland in 1719. Uh, An assassination or coup d'etat plot in England in 1722 to 23. A rising in Scotland uh, again in 1745. Uh, an attempt by the French crown in 1759, and I've just skipped over the Elibank plot, which was another English coup d'etat, uh, but we're, but orchestrated by S- Scottish Jacobites to some, to a significant extent in 1753. So quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. So Jessica Roberts on Facebook asked, um, were the prospects of returning a Stuart to the throne ever a strong possibility? Were any of these uprisings close to being victorious?
4: The answer, the answer to that question is is probably not. And uh, the one which did the best chance of success was the Rising of seventeen fifteen because of the strength of its support. But it was also the worst led. Uh, and the one that came closest to success was the Rising of seventeen forty five, where um, the Charles Edward Stuart's commanders forced him to turn back from Derby when he wanted to move, go on to London. That, on that occasion, the military. Uh, dispositions were such that the Jacobites would undoubtedly have entered London. And so we really don't know what would have happened after that, but probably there would have been enough anti-Catholicism and enough British troops and uh, British Allied troops in the field to defeat them. We don't know. But that was the closest they came, 1745. 1715 was the closest that they should have come, but didn't. One thing to notice about all those risings is there was a very large British Army garrison in Ireland throughout most of that period, and so Ireland isn't actually involved in any of the Jacobite risings directly um, to any extent after sixteen ninety too.
2: So you just mentioned there Charles Edward Stuart, who was also known as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Who was he, and what was his role in the Jacobite uprisings?
4: So Charles Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, was the l el- was the eldest son of James the 8th and 3rd as he was known to his supporters that son of james ii and Seventh, who was born on 10th june 1688 uh, charles was born right at the end the last day of 1720 and uh he was brought up basically as a leader of the jacobite rising and he landed he he attempted uh to lead a rising in 1744 i missed that one out in the recent uh, whistle stop tour which was actually stopped by bad weather and then led the rising of 1745. So um, he, he did that as Prince Regent. That was his official title. And uh, But he was looking to restore his father.
2: Was he a good leader?
4: Charles Edward was a, 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 an excellent strategic leader. He knew what had to be done. And one of his great frustrations was he wasn't a particularly good tactical leader. He would get a lot of things wrong in battlefield tactics. But he had got a lot of battlefield tacticians under him who... Didn't quite understand the strategic side. So first of all, a lot of a lot of his supporters wanted to just set up a kingdom in Scotland and not restore the Stuarts in London, and that was impractical because the financial and military power of Great Britain was just too great for that to work, without huge amounts of consistent French support, which French France wasn't going to give. So they they also um, uh, they also took the view that they would get more English Jacobite support than they uh, than they did. I'm not sure he was ever quite so confident as they were, because he knew that in 1651 Charles II, his great his great um, uncle, had gone down had come down to Worcester with a Scottish army and got virtually no English support then either. And he, but what he principally knew was that Charles I, uh, his uh, uh, his great grandfather, his great grandfather Charles I, had not advanced on London. During the, uh, during the war with Parliament in the 1640s, and that not advancing on London was his critical mistake. If he'd advanced on London after Edge Hill, he'd probably have won.
2: So can we just go back a moment? You mentioned um, Glencoe. Um, could you briefly explain what happened there?
4: Uh, uh, as a result of the settlement of the Jacobite War in Scotland, the supporter in 1691, the supporters of King James in Scotland were given to a certain date to surrender to uh, the government of King William and the Scottish Parliament. There, um, Macdonald of Glencoe was late surrendering, uh, partly because he left it to the last minute, partly because of bad weather. And it was decided to make an example of him. And so what was horrific about it was uh, the example, the, uh, the example was basically orchestrated by Scottish politicians with the support of King William was that those soldiers who were were to massacre the McDonald's, and the the idea was to massacre the man, woman, and child, it was not to make an example of uh, McDonald, of Glencoe, or, or some of his senior leaders, were first of all to be billeted on them, and they were to host the soldiers. So they hosted the soldiers, and then... Fortunately the uh, the alarm was raised and a lot of the McDonald's got away but a large number of them were killed and what was horrific about it was was the was uh, murder under the guise of hospitality there was an official uh, official crime in Scots law which was which was a petty treason called murder under trust which this uh, was an example of so it really it it really offended the way it was done really offended uh, the Scottish legal tradition and offended cultural sensibilities as well uh, because there certainly was a lot of brutality in the wars of those days, but not usually being asked to billet people in your houses who then decide to kill you after a couple of weeks.
2: Do we know how many people were killed?
4: Yes, it's a few dozen. Uh, a, uh, so, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, in terms of global atrocities, it's not a huge number, but it was seen as symptomatic of an insensitive and brutal government action, which helped to ferment exactly the kinds of feelings it was designed to suppress.
2: So we've had a few questions about this. Um, how much support did uh, the Jacobites have out of out of England, uh, Scotland and Ireland? Um, presumably Catholic countries would have been on their side to wanting to restore Catholicism?
4: Well, uh, the, the, the Stuarts didn't really offer, first of all, to restore Catholicism. What the Stuarts offered to do was to give greater rights to the Catholics in Ireland to restore the Episcopalian Church, the equivalent of the Anglicans in Scotland, and in the Church of England, probably to try and lift the penal laws in England to lift the penal laws against Catholics. So it wasn't anything like a a counter-reformation. It was more, you know, fair deal for Catholics. Remember at this stage, uh, Catholics can't actually join the British army at all, officially, legally. So they're they're excluded from all public office. They're excluded from the universities. So in that sense, uh, the Stuarts were... Um, were serving the Catholic interest, but they weren't going to restore the Catholic Church. They got support from a variety of sources. Their most consistent supporter was perhaps unsurprisingly France, because France and Great Britain were locked in a struggle uh, to which would be the greatest empire in the world throughout most of the 18th century. The Stuarts got significant support at certain times from Spain, who sent around 400 soldiers and weapons and explosives to support the rising of 1719. They also got support from Russia because of the uh, closeness of Orthodoxy and, uh, Episc- and some of the Episcopal- some Episcopalians. There were very close links uh, there, and there were close links culturally between Scotland and Russia too. They also at times got, su- got support or close to support from Prussia and Sweden. So no, it didn't have to be a Catholic power. They they appealed to quite a lot of non-Catholic powers because one of the issues after 1714, and we really write this out of British history completely, was that the accession of George I to the, thro- to the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland led also to Hanover being incorporated into uh, the possessions of Great Britain. And he was the king of Hanover, and the, 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 uh, only with Queen Victoria did that stop because Hanover wouldn't allow a woman to come to, uh, come to the throne. But Hanover was a small central European state. And basically, a lot of the support and the political language about, the, about support the Jacobites had came from the fact that other European states didn't like the fact that this small state, Hanover, uh, effectively, now had the backing of this very large offshore island with a colonial empire behind it, and and of course in in England, people didn't much like the fact that British money and troops were sent to support Hanover. So it was a two way street. But we we kind of write Hanover out of British history. But it was actually, you know, a just I would say not quite just as much a part of of Britain as Wiltshire in in 1750. But it was a lot closer than than you might think.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: And there might have been no French Revolution, which would also have meant no Napoleon. So um, although these could some extent get, get fanciful the further you go down that route, there's no doubt that the, that the Jacobites, the defeat of the Jacobites changed the future of the world.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
3: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
2: So in 1707, the Act of Union came in, which united the kingdoms of England and Scotland. What effect did this have on the Jacobites?
4: The Union had very little effect on Irish or English Jacobitism, but it massively increased support for Scottish Jacobitism. So um, Scottish Jacobitism, which was perhaps not supported by a majority of the political nation prior to 1707, was very definitely supported uh, by a majority of the political nation after 1707, because it was the primary uh, primary means of being able to rescind the Union.
2: So Adam Hillhouse has asked on Facebook, did most clan chiefs declare or against the Stuarts for religious, ideological or pragmatic political reasons?
4: I think the best way to answer that question is yes, uh, uh, in the sense that all of these things were important. But... One thing to notice about the 1715 rising, where the Jacobites got more support than they got in any other rising from Scotland, is that the commander of that rising, even though at the time he'd been support of the Union himself, the Earl of Mar, he changed his mind and had the zeal of a convert about it, actually put... The political settlement above the restoration of the dynasty in his public statements and uh, the and what he released. So I think we could say the union is uh, the union is the key driver of popular, to some extent, of elite Jacobitism, followed by uh, pragmatic and uh, pragmatic dynastic and simply considerations of personal uh, personal bankruptcy, adventurism, or opportunism. So all those elements, but in Scotland, the union is the major is the major element after seventeen o seven.
2: So we had this question on Instagram. Um, what did women do within the Jacobite movement?
4: One of the interesting things about uh, about women in the Jacobite movement is just how uh, central they were to it. Uh, they were frequently utilized because they were very mostly there was a, a, a disinclination to prosecute women, for printing seditious materials, uh, for raising for raising men even. Uh, which they certainly did. Uh, of course, Anne, Mcintor, Anne McIntosh, who was uh, by marriage of McIntosh by birth of Farquharson, uh, the, the daughter of the of uh, she raised a regiment uh, the, of uh, around about three or 400 men and became its notional commander, though its day-to-day commander was a man called Alexander McGildrey. So women played a significant role. They were also very widely used in Jacobite espionage they also were used in Jacobite art networks and indeed Andrew Lumsden, who is the secretary to the Jacobite court in Rome, uh, frequently patronized female art, uh, 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 in the sense of was their patron rather than patron of being patronizing uh, female artists and uh, ensured that they were developed by some of the con, uh, some of the contemporary painters uh, 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 male painters in, in the Papal States, so women played a very central role in the Jacobite cause. It would be fair to say, um, partly because the Jacobites, uh, the Jacobites had a different the view, uh, the uh, different view of women's place in society. I mean, not a, not a radically different view, but a, but not one which was quite so constrained as uh, what became the the norms of polite British society in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century. Uh, and also because um they were very useful frankly because they were very unlikely to be prosecuted and this was noticed by the authorities so the the um the female rebels and the unnatural uh, the unnatural rebels were all parts of government propaganda after 1745 the fact that Jacobites were um, dis- detaching women from their true role in society was a small but definitely present part of anti-Jacobite propaganda.
2: So, Peter John Mills asked on Facebook, "How serious was the Jacobite threat to the Hanoverians?"
4: Ultimately, the Jacobites were extremely irritating, but uh, to the to the Hanoverian dynasty, but they only came even remotely close to a chance of toppling them in 1745. However, they were a perpetual anxiety. They were, they were even within England. They were a kind of like a minority that won't go away. And uh, in Scotland, they helped to render the country almost ungovernable without military intervention. Ireland, large numbers of troops had to be deployed to ensure that it remained governable. So they were, they were a real irritant.
2: So the final stand for the Jacobites was the Battle of Culloden. Could you just briefly explain what what that battle was? What happened? During the battle?
4: The Jacobite army was ret- was uh, in retreat throughout most of late 1745, the end of 1745 and early 1746. Um, there were some small versals in the retreats, but basically the, 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 they, they were retreating. The Duke of Cumberland, as commander of the British forces in Scotland, was advancing on them. Uh, Inverness was the last borough of any size, the last town of any size that the Jacobites held. And so it was the last store for their food, for their uh, ammunition, for their supplies, because they relied on being not a guerrilla army, but a fast-moving army. And basically they didn't have the horses, and they didn't have um, the capacity to drag their supplies around with them endlessly. So Culloden was fought to contest the road into Inverness. Um, The issue about the battle is that uh, it was not fought on the site that had originally been chosen by the quartermaster general, uh, Colonel John Sullivan, because uh, uh, there was an attempt to carry out a night attack, which launched late, partly because the Royal Navy were on the Murray Forth and it's quite light in Scotland by mid-April, so they could be seen if they'd set off too early but partly because of the disorganisation and difficulty of carrying out a night attack over several miles of open country. So the night attack failed and and they came back and uh, fought the battle on a site they never intended to fight it on and were ultimately defeated, not as a popular uh, story has it, by the victory of muskets over swords, But because the British army had significantly greater numbers of cavalry, and the cavalry uh, carried out a successful, enveloping, uh, successful, or almost successful movement of envelopment over the Jacobite army. And also because the Jacobites, because they didn't fight on any ground that they'd really chosen, uh, were faced with bad ground over part of the area over which they would normally have charged. And also, the left and right wings couldn't see each other because of the contours of the ground at the point where the army lined up. So there were a lot of contributory factors, but basically, the strength of the British cavalry and dragoon—that's mounted infantry—so effectively cavalry arm—was absolutely critical to winning the battle.
2: Do we know how many how many people were involved in the battle?
4: We do. We so there were probably just under five thousand Jacobites and round about eight thousand British regulars.
2: So how did the battle change um, Scotland and its relationship with England?
4: Well, in a sense, Culloden's quite a small battle. And in a sense, if the Jacobites had won Culloden, it wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. They would have lost in the end. It changed a great deal nonetheless. First of all, because uh, the British government had become very frightened indeed by the 45. It had come very close from their point of view. And Cumberland, in particular, was determined that nothing like this would ever happen again, and he uh, so he authorised a, a immense and immediate brutalisation of large areas of Scotland. But he also uh, uh, authorised a long-standing occupation, which lasted really until the 17, uh, late 1750s, early 1760s, and probably at that point, for example, things like cricket were introduced into Scotland. So it wasn't all brutality. Quite often there were garrisons, there were long stay garrisons in the boroughs and towns. It's very interesting; they got on with you know people locally, or they didn't. But you know, it was there was a fact of life. That was the that was the immediate aftermath in Scotland. But the trouble was that they couldn't. Cumberland initially thought that troops had only were needed for six weeks, but they needed for an awful lot longer. And it was only when Scottish troops became incorporated into the British army at, at large scale in the 1750s that the situation was fundamentally resolved and disquiet and difficulty in controlling Scotland died away. So uh, the, uh, the the impact of Scottish troops at, at, at scale on the Seven Years' War, the War of 1756-63 with France, was absolutely critical. And to take one example, one of the reasons that General Wolfe, in fact, probably the key reason General Wolfe's tr- troops were able to get onto the Plains of Abraham and to defeat Mont, uh, uh, Montcalm and the French in 1759, was that one of their officers was a former, uh, a man called MacDonald, was a former Scottish officer in the French service and spoke perfect French, and so was able to get past the French sentries. It changed an enormous amount in terms of the uh, in terms of the British Empire, the uh, the deportations carried out against French citizens in Canada by the by the British army and authorities in the late 1750s were modelled on what Cumberland would have liked to do, and to some extent, but only to a small extent, did manage to do in the Scottish Highlands. But ultimately, the defeat of the Jacobites is a critical moment in world history because, first of all, it's unlikely that the Seven Years' War, which was the ultimate contest for the success of the British Empire, would ever have been fought if the Stuarts had been restored. If it hadn't been fought, there are all sorts of reasons with a big French military presence why the American colonists would not have been able to revolt. And also, the enormous expenditure that France went to to contest with the Hanoverians, the the top empire role would not have taken place. There would have been a better relationship with the Stuart monarchy. And so the French would not have got so far into debt that they couldn't deal with the agricultural crisis in the 1780s. And there might have been no French revolution, which would also have meant no Napoleon. So um, although these could some extent get get fanciful, the further you go down that route, there's no doubt that that the Jacobites, defeat of the Jacobites changed the future of the world.
2: What effect did it have on the traditional clan system in Scotland?
4: It would be proper to think really of Scotland as having a, as having a feudal system, which had slightly different slightly different ways of expressing itself depending where you were in the country. So, it was, so it was a feudal. Sometimes um, rental was paid largely in kind, which could include military service. Sometimes it was paid largely in cash. But even who paid people who paid cash rents often offered military service too. So. The uh, government legislation sought to completely undermine Scottish, uh, uh, the control Scottish landlords have over their tenants, particularly the control to judge them in boroughs of regality, to be able to inflict the death penalty on tenants who've been uh, been found guilty of capital crimes. So basically their, their control, the control of the Scottish nobility over their tenantry was much reduced by the legislation after 1745. And that began to change the relationship forever, though it took a very long time to actually finally change it because there were very strongly culturally embedded reasons why uh, it still uh, commanded the allegiance of a lot of people.
2: So after Culloden, what happened to the Jacobites? Were there any further attempts after 1745?
4: There was only one real further attempt, which is the French attempt in 1759, uh, which was defeated by Admiral Hawke at the Battle of Quiberon Bay, which would have entailed the restoration of the Stuarts. There would have been a further attempts, but Charles Edward, uh, I mean, of course, there was also a plot in London in 1753. Charles Edward didn't want any further attempt that only focused on Scotland. He didn't, he was not, he was concerned and remained uh, rather sentimentally. A uh, sorry for the end of his life, uh, to the end of his life, for the enormous loss of life and what he regards as the inadequate French support that had sustained the rising. So he wasn't prepared to do that again. But so there were those two in the 53 plot and 59. But funnily enough, as late as 1795, after the French Revolution, the French government, the directory contacted the United Irishmen in Ireland, who were at that time preparing for what became the Irish Rising in 1798, and asked if they would like Charles's brother Henry to lead them, who was still alive at this time. And uh, they said, uh, no, (laughs) things have moved on.
2: (laughs) So what happened to Charles Edward Stuart?
4: He died with uh, alcoholism, certainly a contributory factor, though he lived to a reasonable age for the 18th century in early 1788 at the age of 67.
2: Are there any descendants of James II still claiming the right to be monarch today? Quite a few people ask this question.
4: Uh, they don't claim the right to be uh, uh, right to be monarch, but there are quite a few uh, descendants of uh, James 7th and 2nd on the go as it were. So the main line is the uh, Grand Dukes of Bavaria that is now uh, that is now the main line of the Stuarts. They're very well aware that they are the, that they are the claimants but they've absolutely no interest in it. Um, they're also descendants of uh, James's uh, illegitimate son, the Duke of Berwick, um, in the the Duke's um, James Stuarty e. Falco. I think it's it, the Dukes of Berwick and Lydia, in who are grandee grandees of Spain, are direct descendants of James.
2: So someone asked on Instagram how much of our understanding of the Jacobite cause has been shaped by the work of Sir Walter Scott.
4: Scott really took his models from 18th century Scottish Enlightenment historiography, the practice of history. So uh, as part of what we might call a a discourse of reconciliation in the late 18th century, Scottish history started to present the Stuarts as utterly mistaken, an unfortunate accident, but nonetheless... um sentimentally attractive you know they you know they, they have an appeal and it's understandable people supported them but you know it was ultimately a mistake times have moved on that kind of thing so not condemning them but allowing the emotions surrounding them to be primarily ones of nostalgia but nostalgia which is safely distanced by sentiment from being anything meaningful in other words depoliticizing them so walter scott the that interpretation lies behind a good deal of what walter scott wrote um though he actually does offer so he does offer some very interesting um uh, countervailing suggestions for example in rob roy uh, Diana Varnon, who, uh, who's his incomparably in some ways his best heroine, presents the positive attitude of Jacobite uh, of Jacobite womanhood and challenges some of the notions of of um, civility in the uh, the new uh, rising generation. So, so yeah, he he was influential, but a lot of that was because he made a really good story out of a point of view and approach towards the Jacobite cause, which had already been developed in the history of William Robertson and others.
2: A lot of people have asked about how realistic the portrayal of the Jacobite cause is in the TV series Outlander. Uh,
4: the answer is really that Outlander isn't particularly realistic um, but, uh, in respect to the Jacobite cause. It uh, it, it tends to the uh, to the view of Jacobites uh, 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 as victims of elites, and uh, uh, which is characteristic of Peter Watkins' film Culloden, Made in 1964 which itself was very strongly related to John Preble's argument in Culloden. and uh, and it comes from a fundamentally Marxist reading of the Jacobite cause, which is historically I mean I'm not suggesting that the outline of the Marxist books not at all but but uh it's uh the idea is that Jacobite that people would never have done this if they hadn't been tricked or deceived or uh, into doing it um and that isn't really the way Jacobitism functioned at all. People were passionate about it. And the fact, interestingly, that the the books have sold over 30 million copies, people remain so very interested in Jacobitism, is actually testament to the fact that it was hardly an elite trick paid on ordinary people at all. It was a very widespread and important political movement. Some of the questions it asked have not been appropriately resolved To today, and it represents a fault line in the way in which British society uh, and politics developed, which is still visible. It's still visible in Northern Ireland. It's still, I have to say, visible in the uh, Brexit process and the predominantly European alignments of um, Jacobites and Jacobite supporters. And it's vis- It's visible in other. Th- it's also visible in the distrust in the distrust of London and London financial markets. All of those things date right back to the Jacobite era and were core motivations for Jacobite action. So the popularity of Jacobitism really works against uh, the idea that it was that it was a bit of elite trickery. And frankly, in other words, the, the popularity of Outlander demonstrates that the history of Outlander isn't altogether correct.
2: So I think we often have this idea of Bonnie Prince Charlie as a romantic hero as you said the works of Walter Scott and I believe Queen Victoria was quite a fan of Walter Scott and she even admired Bonnie Prince Charlie. Do you think that's right to see him as this kind of romantic hero that that just didn't didn't succeed.
4: Well I think I think that uh, I think the romantic hero is what the late 18th century and Walter Scott and the, his successors made of him um uh, so he's not a romantic hero in that he's he's an 18th century politician he represents a uh, diverse and very difficult to manage because they've got contradictory goals political movement uh, and he's got certain virtues and certain vices uh like most indeed all uh, of us, and particularly of politicians and leaders, where these things are magnified by the scale of the decisions they're taking. So it's much better to view them as normal and take it from there, because one of the reasons we don't understand the Jacobites particularly well is because they're covered in this romantic mythology, uh, which has been sustained interest in them for such a long time, but at the same time prevents us saying, "How do they fit into 18th century politics? How do they fit into international politics? What is the global significance of Jacobinism? It's not about the Highlands. It's not about Gaelic. It's not about uh, it's not about the aristocracy. It's not about an old fashioned culture. It's about an alternative political vision, and that alternative political vision uh, reflects divisions in society which have echoes today.
2: Were there any uh, sympathies within uh, British government for the Jacobite cause at the time?
4: It, this depends on which time. So there were quite a lot of members of parliament with sympathetic to the Jacobites in the 1690s and up to 1714. One of the reasons that George I excluded the Tories as they uh, um uh, not exactly the modern Conservative Party, but they were called the Tories from office between 1714, indeed, his, his son did too, so right all the way to 1760, was because they were suspected of being Jacobites. Um, so they were actually excluded formally from office after 1714. Uh, they probably weren't all Jacobites. In fact, they certainly weren't all Jacobites. There were a lot of Jacobites among them. But of course, actually excluding them from office didn't help them to stop being Jacobites because. That meant the only route, the only route for many Tories back to office, would be a Jacobite restoration.
2: Uh, and I think this will be my last question for you. Um, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions we have about the Jacobites and their uprisings?
4: The biggest, mis- the biggest misconceptions are first that they were romantic, tribal, outside the normal the normal run of 18th century politics they were a critical part of 18th century politics that's one of the key misconceptions uh, perhaps the uh, perhaps the key misconception we have the second is that they were doomed to defeat people don't take these actions if they think they're doomed to defeat and risk their lives they didn't think they were doomed to defeat and they weren't necessarily doomed to defeat if the cards had fallen well the odds could have gone in their favor but they were always more likely to lose than to win that, however, is a very different question, and uh, that, uh, and with the benefit of, as, as the Prime Minister would say, Captain Hindsight, at the time, people were very worried about the Jacobites indeed, because they didn't think they were bound to lose. And we'll understand 18th century Britain better if we understand that.
0: That was Murray Pittock, Professor of Literature at the University of Glasgow, and Honorary Scottish History Advisor to the National Trust for Scotland. He's written several books on Scottish history, including Culloden and The Myth of the Jacobite Clans, the Jacobite Army in 1745. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.